Welcome to Why I Vaccinate, brought to you by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, a pretty interesting show coming up with some tough conversations. We are. We are talking about those tough conversations, and we are going to be joined today by Dennis Martell, who will talk to us about social norms and health promotion. We are also going to be talking to Linda Vale, the health officer of the Ingham County Health Department, and her work in talking with parents. And finally, we're going to hear from Hank Bernstein, a pediatrician from New York who's been practicing for a very long time. An interesting and informative show coming up next. Welcome to Why I Vaccinate, brought to you by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, today we are going to tackle the tough conversations about getting vaccinated and the importance of being vaccinated. Our first guest is Dennis Martell. He has a PhD, Dr. Dennis Martell, Director of Health Promotion. He's also the Executive Director of the National Social Norm Center at Michigan State University. Dr. Martell, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Veronica, I'm going to kind of let you start this conversation because I know that Dr. Martell has a wealth of knowledge and information to share with us today. Great. Thank you. Dennis, I want to start off by asking you about your center and the work that you do. So can you tell us what social norms, what the social norm promotion plays in overall health improvement? Thank you, Veronica, and it's good to see you again. Uh, you know, the Social Norms Center at Michigan State University, we have been doing social norms approach now for over 20 years. The social norms approach is what we like to call the science of the positive. It's a non-prescriptive way of telling people what they do. We don't tell people what to do. We tell people what they do. In other words, we do the research and look at all the factors and then tell back to the people what it is that the norm is. If there is a norm uh, surrounding anything from alcohol to tractor safety, we try to tell people what the norm is. And then if there is a uh, difference in the perception, many people call the social norms approach misperception change theory. You know, there's a perception of, let's say, a college student's coming to MSU. You know, if you ask the, the uh, uh, incoming freshman, what percentage of MSU students you believe are sexually active? They will tell you like 90%, 95%. In reality, if you ask them then how many students you think uh, are you sexually active, or if you ask the uh, college student at MSU if they're sexually active, and it comes to around 70%. So what we try to do is change the perceptions to meet the reality. And what we've seen over 20 years of doing this is if the perception changes, then the behavior also changes. So how can we use that social norm promotion when we talk about vaccination? Can you help us understand that? Well, you know, it's, it's finding out if there is a misperception about vaccination. Now, actually, with vaccination, it was really interesting. When we did our first research in the fall or the spring of 2020 on vaccines, we asked MSU students if 
that what percentage of MSU students do you think would be vaccinated? And they told us about uh, 70, 60 percent of students would be vaccinated. And then we asked them, would you be vaccinated? Is that what you're going to do? And we got about 85, 90 percent of them. So actually, we couldn't really use social norms approach with vaccination. But what we do do is ask students why you'd be vaccinated. And why you'd be vaccinated would be anything from we want to protect our fellow students. We want to protect uh, the uh, instructors and in classes. Uh, we want to protect the grounds workers and the culinary workers. So using the social norms approach, it's a positive approach. It doesn't necessarily, like I said, be prescriptive in telling people what to do. It just tells them what they think. And there are two different types of normative uh, statements we use. There's descriptive norms, which is what people actually do. And then there is injunctive norms of what people approve of. And injunctive norms are actually more powerful. If you ask people what they approve of, uh, they will tell you exactly what they, they approve of. And then you use that to try to change the norm. So if 90% of people in the state of Michigan approve of others getting vaccinated, that's something the rest of the, of the uh, population needs to know. Does risk susceptibility to illness or disease, does that play into the social norm process in any way? It does. You know, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, concept. It's called the extended parallel process model in which when you're faced with a threat or a fear, any threat or fear, there are four processes that happen in your mind almost instantaneously. First of all, you assess the severity of the threat. Second of all, you, uh, you assess the susceptibility. Am I susceptible to this threat? First one being is, is this threat severe? The second one is, am I susceptible to it? And then your mind goes right away to the second part of the process is, what about the response? Is the response efficacious? And the fourth uh, part of it is, can I use this response? So when it comes to COVID, what has happened here is the response efficacy has been distorted by incorrect information, by politics. Uh, and what we have here is a sense where people know that COVID is severe. People who have a relative impact know that they're susceptible. In other words, if somebody in their family or their social get-together, whatever, has gotten COVID, then they know they might be susceptible. So we come to response efficacy. The response efficacy is the problem here, is because we know science and the, the uh, a vaccine does work. But what has been distorted is all the information out there about the vaccine doesn't work. The, the actual efficacy of the response itself, whether I can use it, that's easy. You know, you can go anywhere and get the vaccine. It is the uh, efficacy of the response itself that is a challenge here because of all the distortion. I know Anne has some questions for you about parents and, and communication with doctors. Anne, I'll, I want you to go ahead and, and have a chance to talk to Dennis, too. You know, Dennis, this has to be fascinating for you right now during the pandemic because we haven't had a pandemic in our lifetime and you study social norms. What are you learning through this pandemic? What are some of the things that you want our listeners to know that you have learned about being in a pandemic and the social norms involved with it? Well, you know, I think 
what I tell parents and what I tell even administration and what I tell my own family is to reframe everything. We need to reframe it into a discussion that draws away the emotion from it. So let's let's uh, talk for a minute about the concept. I like to study the anthroposophy of words. In other words, the anthropological philosophy, breaking down the origin. If you, The true definition of health is the capacity we have at any given moment to be in this world, to interact with the world, and get back to it. So health is the capacity we have at any given moment. Now, every parent wants their, their kids to uh, be well. Wellness is an aspiration. So what I try to do with parents and say, do you want to increase the capacity of your children to be uh, academically and socially successful? We reframe the whole conversation. What the pandemic has done has given us a lot of anxiety without a response. And that is a disaster for uh, parents when they're thinking about how to protect their kids. The normal way to do that is to think about the science. Now, science is uh, another word for knowledge. And we have this uh, political and uh, distortion of what science is. I tell people to trust the science or I tell them, trust the knowledge that's out there that got you so got, got you this far in life and your kids. So it's really about trying to understand the uh, reframing of the topic. And the topic should be done in a way that's both uh, kind, respectful, caring and in a way that you can talk to your kids about it. I think that's so important, making sure that you're meeting those parents with empathy because they really do want to do what's best for their their children. And before we let you go, Dennis, how do you feel you're doing with regard to this, convincing people to follow the science and make the right decisions? Well, what we're doing is trying to, with the social norms approach, is really trying to change perception. We have what we call protective norms, too. If we're not trying to get anyone to necessarily change a behavior that's ingrained in them, what we're trying to do is also get them to talk about the protective behaviors. When it comes to alcohol, we've learned that not necessarily telling people to not to drink, but to stay with your friends and to uh, you know, set a limit on drinking. So what we have learned with the social norms approach is that culture change is hard. Uh, changing and leaving the emotions out of a discussion like like a pandemic is, is very hard. Everyone is tired. Everyone has anxiety at this point. What we do with the social norms approach is just telling the truth. It's non-prescriptive. It's a positive approach. Uh, we don't uh, tell people that you necessarily have to stop a behavior. We're just telling them what they do. And I think that's the, the one I w statement I would leave you with is be honest. Be honest, be empathetic, be caring. It's a hard time right now. Nobody's been through a pandemic unless you're 120 years old. So no one knows what to expect uh, on the other side. Uh, the thing that we've seen from the research is that a lot of the students and a lot of the parents are very nervous about the future. And so what we have to do is with a caring kind approach and with empathy and compassion, just tell them the truth. And the truth is, will set you free in most cases. Dennis Martell, Director of Health Promotion and Executive Director of the National Social Norms Center at Michigan State University. Thank you for the time today. It was really nice talking to you. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. 
You too, you are listening to Why I Vaccinate. We'll be back right after this. listening to Why I Vaccinate. I'm Ann Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And our next guest is Linda Vale. She is the health officer with the Ingham County Health Department. And she's here with us to continue this conversation about having the tough conversation about vaccinations and keeping the community safe. Welcome to the show, Linda. Well, thank you so much for having me here. So, Linda, It's kind of a tough time right now, very trying time to be a health officer in the state of Michigan. Talk a little bit about the work that you're doing to keep the community healthy. Well, you know, it kind of spans a whole lot of things, everything from just keeping people informed about what's going on, um, watching trends, um, working with vaccinations, as well as contact tracing, case investigation, you know, trying really to contain covid Um, outside of, you know, vaccine being our most effective mechanism to contain and and to stop the spread of COVID. But, you know, we do know that we're just now uh, vaccinating five to 11 year olds. And so the the tried and true public health strategies of identifying cases, isolation, quarantine of those who have been exposed, but who are not yet ill is basically, you know, a containment strategy and is one of the best ones we've had Now, of course, we learned with COVID that one of the other things we can do is wear masks. Uh, Lots of controversy about that. I'm going to tell you that, you know, people will say even on the box, it says that that mask is not going to block a virus from coming in. And that is correct. But the fact is, is the mask is about source control. So this mask is really about covering my face. And if I were COVID positive, blocking particles, whether they be large ones, which we call droplets, or the very small ones, which we call aerosols, from actually coming out and affecting other people. It minimizes that distance and potentially also minimizes what we call the viral inoculum. In other words, it will bring down the number of virus particles that might actually get out. So, um, And then the wearer does have some minimal protection as well on the other side. So all of this talk about masks don't um, block the virus from coming in is not an understanding of what these masks are for. So that is what the masks are for. Oh, that's so interesting. So in your job, you see a lot of families. They come to the health department for information and advice. What are you seeing? What are they saying? How are they feeling? Well, you know, some are just, you know, we we had our first clinic with our 5 to 11-year-olds last, uh, I think it was Wednesday. And you know, that was another one of those just wonderful moments in public health. It was one of those times when, you know, the people who were there that day have been so anxious and have been waiting for so long to get their kids vaccinated. And the relief, the overwhelming feelings of joy. I mean, I saw tears. I saw lots of thank yous. I've gotten, you know, emails from some of these folks afterwards. But, you know, parents talking about being able to get together over the holidays now with their 90-some-year-old um, parents who are the grandparents of these young children who haven't been able to be vaccinated. And they're feeling this sense of we can gather as a family everything in, you know, in a multi-generational way and not put our older family members at risk or even other family members. I, I ran into an individual whose uh, father was involved in clinical trials um, at 
Cleveland Clinic. And I don't know whether that was related to cancer or something like that, but it's a family that was having to be very careful, stay in most of the time because a younger child still needed to be vaccinated to help protect this vulnerable family member. So there was a lot of that. Um, and then there's a lot of other questions. So let's kind of go into the other questions. Right. How are you dealing with the people that come to you with misinformation? They've, they've been online and they're following the wrong site and they just are really misinformed about this. How do you deal with that, Linda? That is a tough one because a lot of that stuff has been out there in such ways and has been propagated. Much of it, I would say, is beyond misinformation. It's flat out disinformation. And um, it's really challenging to get people to budge out of those places. So, you know, one of the things you hear is we don't know what the long term effects of this are going to be. Well, you have to understand a vaccine versus other kinds of medications. Long term effects from a vaccine are likely to happen within the first two months, because unlike a medication that you're on all the time, where, you know, we might learn years down the road that this medication that was coursing through your system all the time has a long-term effect. If it was a new one, a vaccine goes into your body. Um, the inert ingredients are things that your body has been exposed to many, many, many times. The mRNA itself, which is what causes the immune response, then basically goes in. It falls apart fairly quickly, too. All the rest of what happens in your body is your own immune system. There are no long-term effects of your own immune system doing its job. So what you're saying, Linda, is there's nothing that's going into your body that's going to be destructive for the long-term. This vaccine is designed to stimulate the immune response to fight COVID. That is correct, as is the case with you know all, all vaccines. They stimulate your immune response. So, you know, it, it's just a different way of looking at things when you start talking about, well, what about long-term effects? What about, what are we gonna find out 10 years from now about this? That's just really a false sense of what a vaccine is and how it works. And Veronica, I know you've got some questions for Linda Vale too. Linda, I wanna talk to you about um, the parents who bring their kids in and they're not opposed to vaccination, but they have some questions. How do you um, interact with those parents and how do you talk to your um, other people doing providing support in your clinic? How do they deal with them as well? You know, I think the best thing to do is to meet people where they are. Um, so you understand what, what, what their concerns are, um, you try to walk through those concerns. And, and in the very end, many, many times, the best advice to give them is, please have a conversation with your pediatrician. If you have concerns, you know, we hear allergy concerns. There's not a lot in these vaccines that create allergies. Um, we hear about fertility and pregnancy, clearly not with children, but you know, that has been something that has been dispelled as well. Um, and, and so we just have to walk through a lot of those different concerns, acknowledge them to some extent because they're there. You know, they're there. They've been said. They've heard them multiple times. So understand why they are con continuing to ask these questions and then just try to have conversations about what the reality is, what the science and the facts say, and then move forward. And then, you know, if you're really dealing with somebody who's still you know, really concerned, then really, honestly, the best place for them is to have a conversation with their pediatrician. And what I always say is, do not hesitate 
or think that you are bothering your pediatrician by wanting to have this conversation with them. So do you find that parents have questions about the flu vaccine more than, let's say, other vaccines that their kids are going to get? Not really. Um, Not a lot of questions about flu vaccine, except I think what we see with flu vaccine is a sense that younger people don't need it. So, you know, you go to our really young ones, which are most at risk for, you know, adverse effects with flu, you know, are really young and are really old. Um, and, and we're protecting them by vaccinating around them since they can't get vaccinated until six months. But as we move into those younger years, adolescent years, and even into their 20s, there's just kind of this thought that, you know, it's the flu and I don't need a vaccine. And again, I think we lose sight of a very important part of vaccines. And one is, is that that vaccine is to protect yourself. And you know, just as well as, as you know, better actually than most people, uh, Veronica, that that vaccine is not just about that. That vaccine is about creating a ring of protection around those who either can't get vaccinated or particularly vulnerable. So when a baby is born and can't get a flu vaccine, when a baby is born and can't get a Tdap vaccine for that pertussis, then what's really, really critical is that those parents are vaccinated, that other family members are vaccinated, that the people that are going to be around them and caring for them are vaccinated so that there's a barrier between this infant, this child, and this virus being able to get to them. You provide essentially a, you know, a, a barrier, and that's so very critical, and that you know, really is part of that herd immunity conversation. We need enough people vaccinated around the vulnerable in our population who either are gonna have waning immunity or who are um, unable to be vaccinated for legitimate medical reasons. And then we have an obligation socially to vaccinate around them to the extent that they're not at risk. So, yeah. So for those um, listeners who don't know about the schedule for the influenza vaccine, can you talk about when a baby can start to become vaccinated and, and how if a parent needs to catch up their child, when and how they can do that? So um, we start vaccinating babies at six months for influenza. And, you know, in terms of a catch-up schedule, that really is based on at at any point in time when somebody shows up. So, you know, if you are behind, we're going to get that vaccine and then we're going to continue to go through the schedule as it is. So a delayed vaccine just just means, okay, we, we missed this one by a couple of months. Let's start right now and then let's keep moving forward. So I like to think of the phrase better late than never, right? For these families exactly. who have to get their kids caught up. So when, when a parent comes in and they have questions, where do you refer them? If, if obviously you have some materials there, but where else do you tell them to go so they get good information? Uh, you know, my tried and true sources of information are the CDC, the state health department, our health department, the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, and, and your own pediatrician. And all of those organizations are recommending the COVID vaccine for kids 5 to 11. Uh, Obviously, we've been vaccinating adolescents for a bit longer here. But what can you say to parents about the importance of getting that vaccine? So um, the vaccine is available for 5 to 11. It's safe and effective. We know that. We've shown that. Um, We've got a few things going on. One is, is that 
while we know that children are very low risk for severe COVID, while we know that children are very, very low risk for dying from COVID, we do know that children can get COVID. And there are a couple of things that are important about that. One is, what is the impact on that child? Mm -hmm. We do know that we have lost over 600 children in the United States to COVID. Um, as you know, if that's your child, that matters. If that's my granddaughter, my children, that matters. Any life we can save is worth saving, especially if it's preventable. Preventable deaths, no matter how many there are, and there are far fewer deaths from a lot of other things that we vaccinate for already as a standard childhood immunization. Fewer deaths in those circumstances. I think hepatitis B might be one of them. Um, but more deaths with COVID. Why wouldn't we be vaccinated if we're vaccinating for these other things? So it protects that child from the potential of these serious consequences. About 70% of children who end up with multi-system inflammatory syndrome end up in the ICU. Um, we know that children also can have long COVID and we don't yet know what is long COVID um, going to do? How is it gonna affect people neurologically and how long really will it last? So we're talking about potential long-term effects as well. So we do want to protect our children, even though we know the risk is low, because anything preventable in terms of a death is worth preventing. The next thing is those children are part of the transmission in our community. Yeah. About 25% of our cases right now are between the ages of zero and 17. We have lots of cases. We're soaring back up again, which means we have a lot of community transmission, which means they're contributing to community transmission, when we contribute to community transmission, we're affecting everything. We're affecting hospitalizations. We're affecting things that are going on a lot of other places. And what we're doing is potentially exposing vulnerable family members or vulnerable community members via transmission going on with children. Linda, this is just such great advice. We really appreciate it. And I really loved your advice about meeting people where they are and trying to remain calm and just give them the information. Are you feeling like that is effective and you are trying to keep people calm and it's working? Oh, absolutely. For people who have concerns, um, you know, who really are just like, I, I believe in vaccinations. I've watched all of this go out. I, I might be vaccinated myself, but when it comes to my children, you know, then there's this little concern, meeting people sure. where they are. There certainly are some people out there, and we all know it at this point in time, that are just not movable. They're believing in conspiracy theories and things that are just just pat patently false. And, and it's very difficult to get through to that. But when you're with somebody who's not in that space and you can have a conversation with and deal with questions and concerns, fears, whatever, then, then you have some place to move. Linda Vale, Health Officer with the Ingham County Health Department. Thank you for your time today. It was really nice to meet you and to speak with you. Thank you so much. Take care, Linda. Thanks for everything you're doing. You are listening to Why I Vaccinate. We'll be back right after this. continues now on Why I Vaccinate with Dr. Hank Bernstein. He is a professor of pediatrics at Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell and a past member of the CDC's advisory committee. Dr. Bernstein, welcome to the show. Welcome to you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here to promote vaccines. 
It's great to have you. And Veronica, I'm going to let you kick this segment off because you speak very, very highly of Dr. Bernstein. Dr. Bernstein, I'm so happy to have you here for our listeners to really hear your perspective on vaccinations and the importance of them for their kids. So how long have you been vaccinating kids? Well, I will start with age. I'll say that um, I finished my residency in 1985. So we're talking about um, 36, 38 years. And has your perspective on vaccination changed in those 36 to 38 years? My perspective on vaccines hasn't changed at all. Vaccines work. Vaccines are safe. They really make all the difference in the world. What has changed is, A, the number of vaccines that we have to protect children and adults and families, but also increasing concern that the public has as to the effectiveness of the vaccines. The vaccines work so well that a lot of the diseases that they have experienced decades ago, such as polio or haemophilus influenza type B, they don't see anymore. So when it's out of sight, it's out of mind. And people really wonder, do I need all of these vaccines if these diseases don't really exist anymore in the United States. And in your practice, have you seen um, children with poor outcomes from illness that is vaccine preventable? Absolutely. I wish that we didn't, but we continue to see certain diseases that continue to cause significant morbidity and mortality uh, amongst uh, children. And I have to say that every time you make a diagnosis of a disease that could have been prevented by a vaccine, the family always asks, could I have done something differently? And of course, it's difficult to share with them that there was a vaccine, but they had opted not to get the vaccine for their child. So I know that we want to talk to you about flu today, but before we get there, I think it's important for our listeners to understand the life cycle of a vaccine. So can you tell our listeners about from from start to finish how a vaccine gets to the market? So obviously there is a disease and when there's a disease and there are multiple ways of treating it, it's much more important to prevent and preventing diseases using vaccines. And so a vaccine develops, the science uh, is developed. It starts with an animal model. They use specific technology, specific principles. From there, there are different phases of the vaccine. Phases one is one that identifies just a, a safe dose in maybe 10 to 100 people. From there, it moves to phase two, which is closer to 100 or several hundred people up to 1,000. And that's now looking at not just safety, but also the immune response. And then ultimately, phase three trials. And the phase three trials are very important because they look at safety, the response, as well as how effective the vaccines are. And that those three things are what's most important. Once all that data has been collected, phase three trials are tens of thousands of people, just as we've had with the COVID vaccines. Uh, Pfizer did 40,000 
Um, Moderna did 40,000 as well, as did Janssen. They present their data to the FDA, who has an advisory committee called VERPAC. VERPAC re re uh, reviews all of science and has a robust discussion and makes determinations on whether a vaccine should be licensed or, in this case, pandemic, authorized under emergent situation. Once that happens, it then moves to the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices of the CDC, you're well aware. And the CDC and ACIP look not just at the science, but they also look at implementation and equity. They take into account all the clinical considerations for this vaccine that's been authorized by the uh, FDA so that we can reach any of our 330 million people in the United States as possible. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think it's so important for parents to understand that. I know Anne has some questions for you about the flu vaccine since it's flu season. So please, Anne. Well, and you know, Veronica, you asked at the beginning of this conversation, Dr. Bernstein, a very important question. And it was, how long have you been working with vaccines? And the reason that I say that's important is because his answer was 36 to 38 years. So Dr. Bernstein, you would not be recommending either the flu vaccine or the COVID vaccine if you had any issue at all over this long, very, very successful career dealing with vaccines, correct? Absolutely. My experience has seen much disease, much hospitalization, death in children and adults, and the idea that we can prevent these uh, diseases is what's most exciting to me. It's vaccine preventable diseases. We ought to take full advantage by getting people, uh, as many people as we can, vaccinated. It's great to have the vaccine, but if people aren't vaccinated, then these diseases can rear their ugly heads and cause real problems. So talk a little bit more about the flu vaccine and uh, the importance of not just children getting it, but everybody. So you're right that this is a universal recommendation that people should get the flu vaccine. Upwards of 40 to 60 million people will get the flu and tens of thousands of people uh, would die every year from the flu. So we're talking about tens of millions of visits. We're talking about tens of of thousands of deaths is really something that we want to prevent. Now, last year, people probably don't know anybody that had the flu because, in fact, it was a record low amount of influenza last year. But that wasn't because the virus was necessarily wimpy. What was different is this is a respiratory virus, and it spreads person to person. And what's different is last year with COVID-19, we put into place mitigation factors. So people were socially distant. People were in lockdown times. People learned to use good hand washing. People were wearing masks. People were avoiding being indoors unless there was proper ventilation. So all those mitigation factors caused a total decrease in the amount of influenza that we see. 
But now things are opening up and there is more contact. People going to football games. Kids are back in school. There's much more people-to-people contact. When that happens, it is very likely that we're going to get lots of influenza. So I encourage everyone not just to get their COVID-19 vaccine, but they really should get their influenza vaccine as well. How do you respond to people who say, well, the influenza vaccine isn't all that effective? Some years it doesn't cover all the different kinds of flus out there, Dr. Bernstein. So that is a common question that many people ask. And I understand that. But honestly, every year prior to the pandemic, the vaccine effectiveness of the flu vaccine was anywhere from 40 to 60 percent. That is so much better than zero percent getting the vaccine at all. And so we know that it was effective in preventing severe disease, less hospitalizations, less intensive care unit uh, admissions, and less deaths. When that happens, we should be happy that we're able to keep people out of the hospital and keep people coming. It's not easy to protect somebody or prevent them from getting a severe disease, a respiratory disease. When they're vaccinated, the type of disease or the quality of the disease that they get is much, much, much more mild. And we know that we want populations that don't do well when they get the flu. Those that are 65 years of age and older. Children under the age of five are hospitalized at the same rate as senior citizens 65 and older. We know that kids are great transmitters. They don't really as well. So it's important for us to vaccinate the kids and all their family members and transmission within families and communities. Dr. Bernstein, professor of pediatrics at Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell and a past member of the CDC's advisory committee. Thank you for this important information today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And you've been listening to Why I Vaccinate, brought to you by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas, and on behalf of my co-host, Veronica McNally, we hope you have a great day.